If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was one of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, "'Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent.'" For now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Abby, uh, for bringing that encouragement and worship. I um, was thinking sometimes we get caught up in worship, and we kind of get caught up in joy, and sometimes we got to put it on. And this was a morning I kind of felt like I had to put it on, you know? And uh, it's good for us to be encouraged like that, for us to remember that how good God is and what He's done for us. And um, I do get uh, the privilege of continuing us in our series in Acts, but I'm going to need some interaction here. I'm going to need some audience participation, okay? Can you do that for me? Thank you. I heard, thank you, Sam. Thank you. Hey, um, all right. So question, um, what's the most important thing that you've lost? Someone so genuinely, t- I mean, tell me, tell me something you've lost that was really important to you. Anyone? Now, parents, I know some of you lost a kid before, so don't tell me. Come on, give me some, something that you've lost. Sister, someone lost a sister. That would be pretty bad. Who else? What, what's something you've misplaced, that you, something valuable to you? Keys, wallet, there you go. Phone? Debit card? All, all that, all, hey, so listen, I am notorious for losing stuff. Ask my wife, I am notorious for losing stuff. In fact, I'm, I'm to a point where I'm so ashamed. I, I try to avoid getting noticed. Like I'll go through, I'm thinking about, okay, I need to get ready for the next day. And I, I will like go through the house and I'm looking for my keys and my wallet because I don't know where they are. And my phone, I've, I've lost them at some point. And like, I just try to avoid eye contact with my wife because I know like she's gonna, she's gonna, I'm gonna, she sees me moving around the house. Like I'm trying to be inconspicuous, but uh, she knows I've misplaced something. I'm notorious for this. Um, and, uh, I don't have a story about losing one of my children, thankfully, that I can remember. I've forgotten already. Um, But uh, I did lose my car one time. No joke. We went to to Forest Park, went to the Balloon Glow. This was years ago. Great event, great time. We're out with friends, stayed out to Forest Park for hours and uh, just really had a good time. Then the event comes to a close 
and uh, it's getting dark, and my wife's like, all right, where'd you park? And I'm like, all right, we're this way. And I realized in that moment, I didn't remember exactly where I parked. I knew generally the direction that I had walked to get from the car, uh, but I had walked a really far way. If, you do, if you're not familiar, Forest Park is really big, um, and that's a pretty big event. I had walked a long way. So we're, we're heading out, and we walk, and we walk, and she's like, we don't know where the car is. She's picking up on it. I'm like, I'm like yeah, it's over here. Uh, and uh, there's so many people, there's so many cars, and, and I genuinely, like, we can't find the car. And it's dark, and we're in Forest Park, and uh, we, we're, we're, <laughs> we're hot. It's summertime. We're sweating. We come over a hill, and then finally, after a long time of looking, we find it. And there it is, all alone, because all the other cars had left. It was in a long line of cars, but now it's all by itself. And uh, I remember feeling this massive relief that we had found something that was valuable to us, that lost, that was going to get us home. Um, and then uh, we got in the car, and the battery was dead because I left the lights on. Not a good night in the Harrington house uh, that night. Not a good night, not a good night. But I am, you know, it's funny, when, you, when you, we lose stuff and we kind of realize how important and how valuable they are to us based on our response. So like if I lose um, directions that are on a piece of paper, like it probably won't matter because I'm thinking I'll just put it in my GPS, right? I don't need to look for that piece of paper. I'm indifferent about it. But we lose something valuable to us, like our keys or our wallet or our cell phone or our car, or a child, when we've misplaced them for a moment, when we look around and they're not there, like, like gloves are off, routines out the window. What we, you know, we're, we're fully focused on the one thing that has gone missing. And when we start missing something, we start moving, right? When I lost my car, I was constantly moving, looking for it. And, uh, and losing stuff reveals kind of how important it is to us. So a question to ask ourselves this morning is, is what's important to us? I wanna think about that. What's important to you? What's important to me? What if it went, something that went missing would cause you to abandon every, everything else? Maybe even a more important question uh, what's important to God? What's important to God? Acts 18 is going to shed light on what God considers valuable and worth going after. And when we're looking for something, we are constantly on the move. And as we've been preaching and teaching through the book of Acts, one thing that hopefully you've noticed that I've noticed is that God throughout the book of Acts is constantly on the move. We've experienced this. He, the God, uh, God is on the move in Jerusalem in Acts chapter two when his Holy Spirit is poured out. We read uh, about that and all of a sudden people start believing in, Ju in Jesus and coming to faith and being baptized and, and it's just, Christianity is breaking out in Jerusalem. But it doesn't stop there. God's on the move geographically. Jerusalem experienced revival, but they also experienced persecution. And this persecution scattered the Christians. And they didn't go quietly. They went and says, telling people about Jesus and seeing people come to faith. And we read about Philip going to the Samaritans who they would have not gone to otherwise. He goes to Samaria and he preaches to the Samaritans and the gospel breaks out and the sick are getting healed and, and, uh, and, and, and demons are coming out of people and people are coming to faith in Jesus. 
He's on the move geographically. God didn't want the gospel to stay in Jerusalem. He wanted to get out of the borders. He wanted it to go out. He's on the move socioeconomically, right? It's not one class that gets saved. It's rich and poor, free and slave, coming to believe that Jesus was the son of God, receiving his Holy Spirit. We read how he's on the move racially as he sends Peter to Cornelius, Jew to Gentile, deep-seated racism between the Jews and the Gentiles, deep-seated hate, even laws set in place in Jewish culture for them not to associate with the Gentiles. But God moves through a vision. He sends Peter and his Holy Spirit to go to Cornelius' house, a Gentile, and the Holy Spirit comes. God is tearing down, dividing walls and uniting all kinds of people under the name of Jesus. God's on the move. He's looking, he's searching for what's most valuable to him. He's tearing the house upside down. He's flipping the couches. He is going between the cushions. He's looking in every corner to gather what's been lost. And God's plan that he's been revealing to us through all of Acts is that he intends to fight what he has lost through his Holy Spirit and his church. How is he gonna regain what he's lost through his Holy Spirit and his church? If you have faith in Jesus, you are a part of his church. That's you and me. We're plan A. That's good news, right? I mean, I can't find the ketchup two inches from my face looking in the fridge door, but somehow God's plan is to use someone like me for his gospel to go out. And here's the crazy thing, guys. God doesn't have a plan B. He doesn't have a plan B. His plan is through the power of his Holy Spirit and through his people that he's gonna reclaim what has been lost and what's gone and wandered away. That's his plan. We get to be a part of his plan. So God is on the move and Paul is on the move. He's on the hunt. He is searching. We read in chapter 17, right before this passage in Acts, we read about Paul and what he's doing is he's going from city to city to city. He went from Thessalonica to Berea to Athens. I mean, Paul sounds like type A personality on steroids. Like he's got to get to everyone. He's got to get to them now. There isn't a moment to lose. He's gonna get it done. He's just like, all you type A's, you love Paul. Me, I'm like, man, can't we just like chill for a little bit? Like, can't we relax? But no, he's not. He's, he's not gonna relax. He's not gonna chill. He's going from city to city and he's sharing the gospel. And what's been happening up to this point is that as Paul has entered into these cities, he's sharing the gospel in the synagogues. He's going to the synagogues and he's teaching them that Jesus was the Christ, that he is the Christ, that he was the one who fulfilled all of the scriptures, that he was the Messiah, the, the son of God who came to die for our sins. And that to believe in him, to have faith in him would allow us to be born again and enter into his family. And what happens city after city is that at first they kind of debate with him, but then some believe. And when some believe, well, the Jews didn't like that. The Jews who didn't believe Jesus was the Christ didn't really like that. And so then they would plot to kill him or arrest him or drive him out. And that's what happened. He was driven out of each city. In chapter 18, he arrives in Corinth and it's kind of the same story. He gets into the city, he meets up with some believers and he goes in and he starts teaching and reasoning in the synagogues. 
But here it seems that no matter what he says and does, the Corinthians resist the gospel. He's not winning anybody over. Verse four, it says this. It says, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And then verse six says, they opposed and reviled him. Reviled. You know what reviled means? Reviled means to criticize in an abusive or angrily insulting manner. I, I don't know about you, but I don't particularly like to be criticized in an abusive or angrily manner. Um, but that's what they were doing to him. They were tearing him down, like trying to hurt him. Like they weren't being reasonable. They weren't like asking questions. They weren't like, man, Paul, try to explain this to us. Like, I see what you're saying, but it's really hard for me to believe. Like, what, what, how does this make sense? Like, no, they were just like ripping. It's like, basically they're, they're ripping Paul apart. They're like, you're an idiot. You're an idiot to believe that. Your clothes are stupid. Your hair is stupid. Like, they're just tearing him down. They're abusive. They don't want to listen to him. He's not winning any of them over him. And I think one Sabbath of that, like going in one time and experiencing that would have been enough for me. Um, but it, Paul goes back and he goes back. Now, we don't know how many Sabbaths. It just says for some Sabbaths. He says, it says in the synagogue, every Sabbath, he tried to persuade them. So for some Sabbaths, a week by week, he went by. And then he gets to the point where he's had enough. In verse six, this is Paul's response to their unbelief. He says, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Have you ever tried that kind of response to someone you're trying to witness to? I don't recommend it. I mean, I think Paul, you know, it's funny. I, I don't know if this is like a godly response or not. You know what I mean? It's just how he responded. But uh, I don't imagine, like I imagine if I say, your blood be on your own heads if you don't believe. Like probably closing the door there on that opportunity. But he's, he, he, they are persisting in their unbelief and Paul feels the need to move on and he goes right next door. This is verse seven. He left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. And his house was next door uh, to the synagogue, which, I mean, it probably shouldn't, but this does make me smile a little bit. Like, I mean, there's this kind of throwdown, like picture, like he says, he shakes out his garments and he's saying, your blood be on your own hands. And they're probably like, whoa, Paul. And then he kind of goes out of the synagogue, like I'm done with you. And then he goes right next door. It's like, they're like watching him. Like, oh man, he was really, he'll probably be back tomorrow. Like, I mean, but you know, I read, I read a commentator. It said it was Paul's kindness that he went next door. He didn't actually like, it wasn't his desire that that door was shut and that like they would never receive the gospel, but it was his kindness to continue to preach, to continue to teach about Jesus and to enter a house that was still close to the synagogue because he still hoped that some would come to faith and some would still believe. And it seems his plan worked because after he went next door and he started speaking, it says that many Corinthians believed and even the ruler of the synagogue and his entire family came to believe in Jesus and were baptized. Now, I think it's important. I do think it's important we understand baptism because we read this over and over again in the book of Acts that people believe and they are baptized. And Crispus, 
pretty cool name. Say Crispus. Crispus. Come on. Come on. The ruler of the synagogue, he would have been familiar with baptism. I don't know about you. I don't know what you know about Jew, Jewish culture and all that stuff, but, but baptism or immersion or washing themselves is not an unfamiliar thing. So if you're new to church or new to Christianity or new, like if you see someone, like if you watched the baptism today, you might, what's that about? Like what? Because we're not walking around dunking people in water. That's just not something that happens in our culture. But in Jewish culture, it was something that happened. Um, and, it's, and it's important that we understand this. So in Jewish culture, uh, they had rituals of washing, but, of washing, but not to get physically clean, but to become pure in order to get right with God. So if, you, if you've heard of John the Baptist, right, he comes on the scene, he's baptizing people in the river. He's immersing them. He says, repent and turn, get right with God, and he's baptizing people. And there's no Jews on the, on the bank saying, what is he doing? Like, what is this baptism? Like, it was a concept that they were familiar with. There was ceremonial washing, purifying themselves to be able to enter into the presence of God. It was common. But Jesus changes. Jesus changes baptism. Because, see, this baptism for Crispus and all of this family who believed, would have, what, what they would have experienced was a baptism into the faith of Jesus. And it was a final baptism. See, because before they baptized, they immersed themselves, they cleansed themselves to get right with God. But with Jesus, we get baptized because we are right with God. Catch that difference there? They used to get baptized to get right with God and they did it over and over and over again. But what Jesus did for us on the cross was a final work. He said, it's finished. And when we come to faith in Jesus, he says he, we become born again in our heart. He gives us a new heart, a new life by his spirit. And when we are baptized into the faith of Jesus, into the name of Jesus, it's a final baptism because we don't have to live our life. Gotta get right, gotta get right, gotta, we are right with God. He did it because we're right, because none, our best efforts are filthy rags. We can't ever get right with God in our own strength. And that's why Jesus came. And that's why he died. And that's why he rose from the grave. And he lives today. And so when we get baptized, we don't baptize and get baptized. No, it's one baptism, recognizing that Jesus, through our, he died for us and it's our faith in him. It's what's happened internally. And, the, and this baptism is, is an external expression of what God has done in our hearts. He's done it. It's his work. It's faith in Jesus that gives us life. And baptism is just this public celebration and identifying with who God is and what he did. Doesn't save us. Just like I could say, repeat after me and say this prayer. And if you don't have belief in your heart, that prayer means nothing. Baptism doesn't save us. Doesn't guarantee anything for us but it doesn't mean it's not important. Consider this, consider the things that Jesus tells us to do and how important we do this. I do this. I place value on certain things. I say, this is more important. These are less important. All things that Jesus said to do, but I definitely say, hey, the more important, less important. So Jesus commands us to love. So it's a big deal. We need to be a community in a church who loves people irregardless of how they act or behave or the mistakes or hurts that they have done. We are to show love because we have received love. So God commands us to love. 
He commands us to forgive. He commands us to forgive because we have been forgiven. We didn't deserve it. We didn't ask for it, but he extended it to us and he forgave us. And he commands his disciples to go and make disciples and to baptize them. So it's an important thing. It is an important thing. It's something that we, you know, we need to understand the significance of it. We love, I love it when we get to celebrate baptism because it just puts on display that God is on the move and he is reclaiming those who have strayed away from him. So let's not look down or consider anything that Jesus commanded us to do as insignificant or be indifferent towards it. Paul is sharing the gospel and he is baptizing people as they come into faith. And then it seems all of a sudden something shifted possibly, like fear started to rise up in Paul as he's, as he's winning people, as he's seeing them come to faith and as he's baptizing them, they're celebrating that God is on the move. Paul, I think, he, I think he starts to get afraid. And I think this is the reason why God actually chooses to speak to him in this moment because what's Paul's experience been so far? Remember, his experience is he goes into the city, he preaches, some believe, and then when people start to believe, that's when trouble happens. That's when the Jews who don't believe wanna kill him. That's when they wanna stone him. That's when they wanna arrest him. That's when they wanna get him out of his town. So it's probably on some level in his mind, as he's seeing people come into his family, he's thinking, oh boy, trouble's not far behind. Like someone's gonna come after me for this. And then God speaks to him through this vision. And he says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I'm with you and no one will attack to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. There's so much. There's so much in that statement from God. And here it is, the answer to our question, what's important to God? His people. Why did Jesus come? For his people. What does he go on the move for? For his people. God seems most interested to find his people who are still missing. Jesus said, I didn't come for the well, I came for the sick. He said, I didn't come for the righteous, I came for the unrighteous. I'm the shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. No one who loses a child says, well, we lost Johnny, but we got Becca and Sally in their room and they're safe, so we're okay. No, no parent does that. If you lose a child, you forget everything else and you go look for that one child. Jesus is the same kind of father. He has his people. He calls us a family. It's his children. He's our father in heaven. He has kids here on earth that have gone lost. And he is gonna throw everything that he has to see them come back into his family. He's a father who loves, who's coming after. I mean, if you're a believer, don't get me wrong, God loves you. God loves you. He wants to see you set free. He wants to see you to live in increased grace and, and peace. And he wants to see you grow up and mature to be increasingly more like him. God loves you. But God never, never takes the priority or his attention off of those who, don't, who have not found their way home. See, you were once lost. If you're a believer in Jesus, you were once lost and he was 
aggressively going after you. You were once in darkness, but God saved you and he rescued you. And now he's gonna say, hey, now you come along with me. Yeah, there's more stuff to do in you. And we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm gonna, I love you and I'm gonna take care of you and I'm gonna provide for your every need. And I'm never gonna take my eyes off you, but we got some, we got some stuff to do still. And he invites us to come along and to be with him. So he says to his disciples, when he picked his 12, what does he say? He says, follow me. Where are they going? He's got people that he needs to rescue and set free and to heal and to bring back to, into his family. When Jesus is gonna, when he's risen from the dead and he's gonna leave his disciples, he says, go. They say, where are we going? He says, I still got people I need you to go find. I'm not abandoning you. I'm sending my Holy Spirit to empower you and to be with you, but I need you to go. I need you to move. I need you to find that which is precious to me, that which has been lost. He tells Paul, stay. Why? Because I still have people in this city. People who are my people people that the Father is drawing, people that if they hear that I'm the Son of God and I died for them, that they will believe. Paul, I need you to stay. And so Paul stays. He gets planted in Corinth for a season. And although he is stationed in Corinth, he doesn't stop moving. He's grasped something in God. He's been caught up in the Father's heart to find the ones who have wandered off. Paul is staying in Corinth, but he's grabbing God's children. He's going one by one saying, are you ready to believe? Are you ready to believe? Are you ready? Your father's looking for you. Are you ready to believe? Your father's looking for you. Are you? And he's willing to suffer the rejection and the no's and the get out of here. And I don't believe, and I don't want to hear this in the close. He's willing to face that over and over again to find the ones in the city who will say yes. Because there will be people who will say yes. So let me ask you, is there movement in your life around the gospel? Has the love and relentlessness of which he pursued you gripped your heart? Is your heart beating for others to know God? I can remember riding in the back seat of my parents' car, no more than nine, 10 years old. Um, I didn't think a lot. I don't remember thinking a lot about God or people. I mean, I remember as a kid being normal and thinking about myself a lot. And I still, as an adult, think about myself a lot. So some things never change. But I remember, I can remember one moment stuck in my head. And I was, I don't know where we were going. I don't know where we were coming from. I remember we were in the car, I was in the back seat, my head leaning against the window kind of just staring off into the distance. We were on the highway and a lot of traffic was on the highway. It was night and there was, so there's just headlights. And I was kind of just looking at all the headlights coming on the opposite side of the highway passing us, not thinking about anything. And then all of a sudden, I just had this overwhelming sadness come over me. And it was like I became acutely aware of how there are so many people in this world driving by, so many people I'll ne never meet, I'll never interact with, I'll never cross paths with, who are passing me by literally feet from our car, 
who don't know God. And I, I felt my heart like I just got sad, sad for people who didn't know God. I thought, oh, and I just, I wanted people to know God. That moment stuck with me. It stuck with me to this day. I'm 35 and it's like I can remember head against the glass and just being gripped by there are so many people in this world who have not heard. I got to hear John Maxwell, uh, who's a kind of a leadership guru, uh, speak recently. And uh, he began, he's a Christian and just shared story after story of how he'd be in business, conferences, venues, but he would take the opportunity to share his faith and how he's just seen, he just had story after story after story of simply telling people that God's real, Jesus is the son of God, he died for them and loves them, and people responding to that and coming forward and saying, I wanna, I be, I wanna believe in Jesus. As to be honest with you, as I think about that moment in the car, as I think about the stories I just heard, like I have felt just convicted like I have felt convicted in my heart. Like I have, I, I left after hearing him speak saying, like repenting, saying, God, like I'm sorry. I let fear take too high of a seat in my life. I let like being inconvenienced be take too high of a seat in my life. Like I've got, I let my routine, I let the thing that I've got, I've got to do in my day be the thing that drives kind of my day in and day out. Guys, I mean, this is something like, I, I read about Paul going city to city. I read about Paul telling, like just contending for people to know that they have a father in heaven who loves them and died for them and he wants his kids back. Like I, I'm convicted. I need to, like I, I just, I just, I'm confessing to you. It's just like confessing to God. Like this is an area I need to grow in. Like I need to be bolder in. Like I need to be more secure. I need to not care so much what people think about me. And I'm not gonna have the right words every time. And I don't, I, I, in those moments, I don't know what to say. But what did Jesus say? He's like, man, my spirit, my spirit, his spirit's gonna do the work that needs to be done anyways. Like we're gonna get it wrong. It's gonna stumble out clumsily. But we need to tell people, we need people to know that they have a father in heaven who loves them. A young lady in our church uh, told me last week that she often drives by people standing on the corner who are asking for money and um, kind of has that thought like, oh, like I should stop, but no, nah, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to be inconvenient. She's like, and then kind of having that feeling like, oh, I should have done something. I should have done something. She told me last week that she passed someone. She was on her way to pick up a lemonade for her and her husband. And she saw this guy and she's like, you know what? I'm going to buy him a lemonade. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to bless him. So she goes in, brings him the lemonade. He takes it. He's appreciative. He's thankful. She gets in her car and she's, maybe she was in her car when she got, but she's moved, going away from him. She, she saw in the rear view mirror, he, was, he started to walk and he started to limp. And she's like, oh, he's hurting. And not wanting there to be this moment, like, oh, I should have. She turns her, goes back around, pulls up next to him again. Hey, I saw you limping. What's, what's happening? He tells her how he got hurt. What, what, all the pain that he was having in his body. And she's like, I believe, can I pray for you? I believe God could heal you. So she prays for him. Like, now I don't know that he got healed in that moment, but what I do know, as I heard that story, 
I thought, man, if we just do this, if we just, if, if I stop, if I'm willing to be inconvenienced, if I'm willing to tell someone, man, God loves you. Hey, you're sick, man, God, he, God can heal you. I'll pray for you to talk to people, to engage with people, to care about people. He has people in this city who will say yes to him. He has people in this city, if we are willing to go through those who will say no, who will say yes. If God told you that he had people in your family, parents, siblings, cousins, if he said, hey, I've got people in your family who I, they're my people, but I need you to keep on speaking. Would you be willing to go family member to family member to family member and hear no, no? Why are you talking to me about that? No, to find the ones who would say yes. If God told you that he had people in your neighborhood, how many doors would you be willing to knock on and hear no to get to those who would say yes? If he told you that he had coworkers, Guys, this is a challenge. This is a challenge for me. Like this is, I'm not speaking to you out of like this, out of my strength. I'm speaking to you out of my weakness. But I do believe that God has people in our city. He has people in your life that are his people, his kids that he wants back who will say yes, who will soften their heart and say yes if we keep on speaking. We can be a church that finds those ready to come home. I think a helpful verse is uh, Philippians 4.13. And in it, it reads that we can do all things. We can do all things. Technically, it says I can do all, I can do all things, but we, we can do all things, it applies. But this is just like, hey, self-help. Like, no. Actually, like we can't do, we need the second part of this verse. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We need Christ. Guys, we have to realize this is not something we go do in our own strength. Paul needed that vision of God to say, hey, no one's gonna attack you, but I'm with you and I still got people. We need Christ who strengthens us. We gotta live in this understanding that, man, it's, it may not go well, but we're just gonna, we're just gonna take that step of faith we're gonna lean into it and see what God does. It's Christ's strength. It's his task. It's what he's called us to, to namely tell others about him. In verse 10, we need to, we need to leave with this, for I am with you. That was in that vision that he called, for I am with you. God's with you. That's a word we need to hear. God has many people in St. Louis who are his people. They don't know him yet. They're not working with him yet but he's with you. You might be afraid, but he is with you. You might be insecure, but he is with you. You might be hesitant, but he's with you. They might say no, but he is with you. They might reject you and revile you, but he is with you. So we need to go find him. How do we find him? We bless. We pray for them. We begin with prayer. Guys, prayer cultivates this in our life. If you're not, we're not praying for those who are far from God, we are not gonna cultivate a life of walking with him and looking for those who are far from God. We need to pray for those who are far from God. We need to listen. 
We gotta listen to people. We listen because we care. We need to listen to their highs and their lows, what's going well in their life and what's going terrible in their life. Where are they hurting? We need to listen to them because people need to know that we care about them. We need to open our homes and eat. We need to break bread and share our food and be hospitable. We need to eat with people. We need to have people who don't know God around our dinner table. We need to serve them. Guys, look for, we need to look for opportunities to serve the people around us without a hidden attachment or agenda. Without like, well, I wanna, we don't wanna have some, we just, we, God genuinely cared about his children. We need to genuinely care about people and look to bless them and serve them. And we need to share our story. <sighs> Those first four are so easy compared to that last one for some of us. A few of you who are like, man, evangelism is in your alley. You're like, this is weak. David, this is weak sauce. I get that, but I'm speaking to the other of us who are terrified to do this and to myself. Guys, share our story. We have to be willing to be rejected. Practice your story. Man, uh, Dylan Neely, our location pastor and our city location, he's been so helpful to this. He is gifted in this area. He has been so helpful in like, hey, we need to practice our story. Practice telling or sharing your testimony in 90 seconds and 60 seconds. Just practice it out loud with your friends, with your family. Like practice telling people. And you know what? If at the very least we're just say, hey, hey man, I just want you to know God loves you. Jesus died for you and he loves you. And he has a life for you that if you'll follow him. That took like 10 seconds. But those few words could change somebody's forever. Like we want to live with that, being willing to share our story. And I want to end with this, with this verse, because I believe if we write this on our hearts and remind each other, it will shape how we live. Luke 15, 7 says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Guys, this is a priority for God. I mean, we need to write this verse on our hearts. We need to write it on our bathroom mirrors. We remember that God never takes his eyes off those he's wanting to bring back into his fold. You were once someone who was lost and he wanted to bring you back into his fold. And now he's got people for you to bring back into his fold. Grab that communication card for me. Grab this communication card for me. If you would, everyone, come on, help me out here. I want, Cause I wanna do something. I wanna, I wanna help us with step one, begin with prayer. All right, every Wednesday morning, if, you've, um, if you don't know, we, we pray Wednesday morning at Gateway House of Prayer, Wednesday mornings from 6.30 to 7.30. And here's what I would love. I would love to get this communication card back from every single person, but what I want you to do is in this box on the back, I would like you to write just one name, one person that you know in your life who doesn't know Jesus, who you are desiring, praying for, would want to come to know him. Write that, just, just write the name down. You don't need an explanation, just a name. And I'm gonna gather all these communication cards with me at the end of this service. And Wednesday morning, I invite all of you to come and pray, 6.30, Lindbergh Road. It's early, but it's fun. We go to war in prayer every Wednesday morning.
And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna have us Wednesday morning pray over every single name that's written on these cards. We're gonna pray for these people. So I just want you to write, write a name down that you want us to fight in prayer for. We're gonna begin in prayer to see God step in and change these lives. Let's stand.